Hey there, it's Gary Parish. It's Wednesday, April 4, 2018. Welcome back to the Ion College Basketball Podcast presented by ZipRecruiter. If you're hiring, just posting your position at job sites and waiting and waiting and waiting for the right people to see it, not going to work. ZipRecruiter knew this and understood there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you, and these invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in only one day, and ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates, they're out there. ZipRecruiters, how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. And right now, listeners of the Ion College Basketball Podcast can try ZipRecruiter for free. Absolutely free. How do you do it? Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Ion. ZipRecruiter.com slash Ion. That's E-Y-E-O-N. E-Y-E-O-N. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Ion. ZipRecruiter.com slash Ion. Matt Norlander is here with me. I made it home from San Antonio with few issues. Norlander, did you also make it home from San Antonio with few issues? How are you on this, what is it, Wednesday? Wednesday morning. It is Wednesday. GP, good to be back with you and relatively well rested after the game ended. Uh, and we're going to obviously get to uh, everything we can and should about that game. Uh, but I <laughs> got back late, kind of did a right through. Next thing I knew, I had to get to the airport. I, I, never, even, I never even went to bed. Uh, I know, so I, I traveled okay, but had the layover in Charlotte, got like an hour's worth of plane sleep. Fortunately, was able to get a good 12 hours last night, and we are certainly, I think, more refreshed, more clear-eyed than, uh, than we were on the previous two podcasts, but I'm, I'm doing okay. How are you doing here as we, uh, we kind of begin to reflect on, uh, on the championship game, the tournament, and the season that we just finished? I'm not refreshed at all. I somehow, for whatever reason, woke up at 4 a.m. this morning. Just for no reason whatsoever. Like I, I, I went to bed late and thought I would get a nice, solid eight-hour sleep and then just woke up at 4 o'clock and I've been up ever since. I even tried to go back to sleep for a minute, just could not do it. So, of course, if you, go to, if you wake up at 4 a.m. On, you know, on very little sleep and now it's 10.21 Central Time because I live in the Central Time Zone, now I'm, like, it's ready, I'm ready for nap time. But I don't have time for nap time, so I'm just going to be tired all day, it sounds like. I'm miserable. That's what I'm trying to well, say. Well, you know what? You sound you sound really good. I, I can't say that for sure. Your voice sounds good to go for your radio show later today. And I, I did get some people coming up to me at the Alamo Dome and saying, good podcast, but uh, sound a little bit creaky in the voice. Both of you particularly perished. I said, hey, these things happen, and we try and squeeze them in. In fact, doing those podcasts at the Final Four is always fun, but... It is all well, actually that's you know what that's a little bit of a lie. It is I do want to do them, but the final four podcasts are always a crunch because we are always either trying to squeeze them in in between writing or TV duties or this year HQ stuff or we're trying to get them done late after a dinner. So it's always a matter of just trying to hit a moving target, and you know how those things go. We're on we're on such little sleep to begin with, but it was funny to have a few. Media people and NCAA people approach me at the Alamo Dome and saying, yeah, listen to the podcast here. And uh, it sounds like you guys are enjoying yourselves, which we did. But we did. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, the, the, the problem with it is that you and I are operating on two different schedules. And like I a few days uh, in San Antonio, we had call times for television at like 930 a.m. And so we're going to try to get something done before then. Particularly if we like, you know, it's a big social event as well. And it's not just like, hey, let's go out and drink with our buddies. It's like you're meeting with coaches. You're meeting with agents. You're meeting with 
um, people who qualify as sources. And so uh, that, those can make for late nights. And then you've got early mornings. And then, you know, the, the television days are like 12 hour days. You know, we're, we're on set in production meetings. And then you know, one day we had a four hour show followed by a six, a two hour show. Uh, they, they make for real long days. And it does get to a point where if you and I were on the exact same schedule, like if I were just writing or you were just doing TV, then um, we'd be like, OK, when we get out of here, we'll just go knock the podcast but, uh, out. But sometimes I'd get off set and you'd still have a column to write or I'd be up in the morning going to uh, a call time. But you would you know, you'd, you'd be doing something else or maybe even getting some sleep. So it really does become a crunch. They're not um, it, it's hard to find a, a, you know, a good solid hour window to get them done. So you just have to get them done when you can get them done, even if that means you sound maybe hungover a little bit, <laughs> a little bit there. All right. So Villanova is the national champion. And let's get to the game and we're going to recap the season as well. But so let me just merge those th- two thoughts real quick, GP. I went back and looked. I don't know if you did or not. What? number do you think we had Villanova ranked before the first game of the 2017-2018 season had been played? I feel like it was somewhere between 6 and 10, maybe 6. You are you are right in the range. It was number 7 overall, and I feel like anytime you can get a team, you know, ranked 7th or better accurately and they win a title, uh, you did a good job, and, and certainly that was the case here with Villanova. Um, they they set up this season to be expected as the best team in the Big East, a top 10 team, a team that would compete for a Final Four. And now that they've won the title, Parish, to me, I've got a few thoughts on Villanova overall, and I do want to get into a little bit of the game as well, even though it wasn't a great game. Um, Villanova, they've got, they really do have a case as the best offense in the history of college basketball. And the reason I say that is there have been better teams. I think that's fair to say, you know, there you know, there's no doubt about there have been better teams, but no teams that would qualify as the best teams ever can match what Villanova has done here because of how effective they've been with their overall offense. They didn't have the number 1 three-point shooting team in the country and they didn't have the number 1 two-point shooting team in the country but when you combine both of those factors for effective field goal percentage which weighs properly the three-point shot they were number one in the country this year at 59 and a half percent their adjusted offense efficiency margin on Ken Palm is 127.8 that is only shy of Wisconsin's 129 flat from 2014-2015 I think it's fair to put Villanova over Wisconsin at this point because this team won the title that Wisconsin team didn't, and this team won the title by winning all nine of its postseason games, not just by double digits, but by an average of 17.9 points per game, and they averaged in that span between the Big East and NCAA tournaments 84.4 points per game while doing it. And oh, by the way, some of those were runaway victories, and they could have cracked into the 90s even more so if they wanted to. Plus, GP, the teams from the 70s and the 80s and the 90s did not utilize the three-point shot the way Villanova did. Now, you could easily say, hey, listen, take 96 Kentucky or take 84 Georgetown or anything and and put them in today's game where they would look at the three-pointer more like teams do and maybe they would be better. I think that's totally fair if you want to say that, but I'm going on the evidence that we have. And so that's why, to me, Villanova does have a case this season as the best, most lethal offensive team we've ever seen. It set records for most three-pointers made in a tournament, most three-pointers ever made in a season, and most three-pointers made in a tournament game, most three-pointers, or made in a Final Four game, I should say, not a tournament game, Loyola 
Marymount still has that. So that's my, before we get to the game, I guess, that's my overall takeaway on this Villanova team. I think it will age better than we, when, than we even talk about it now collectively, Parrish. I think in 10 years from now, like, I think we appreciated those Florida teams, but no one's gone back-to-back since. I think we look at those Florida teams in even higher regard 11 years later than we do now. I think the same will be true of Villanova. Agree or disagree? I agree. Uh, they ended up taking 48% of their field goal attempts on the season from beyond the arc, and they made 40.2% of those, and they were obviously devastating uh, in the NCAA tournament. Let me just walk you through some bullet points on this Villanova team because um, – I, I think it's very difficult Apply roundup to compare on a dry, teams free from to avoid drift. this, this will era also minimize to teams of of another era because in another era you would definitely get a senior year of Jane Brunson, which I don't know that you're going to get. You would get, uh, you know, probably four years of Omari Spellman, which I don't think you're going to get. You'd probably get four years of Mikkel Bridges, which I don't think you're going to get. Uh, likewise, you'd never get four years of, of Pat Ewing, you know, in 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 Mm -hmm. this era of college basketball. So I I just think when you're talking about elite talents from the seventies and eighties that were going to stay in school for three years and four years when they, they, they most certainly would be one and done candidates. Now um, it's very difficult to say Villanova would be better than some of those great teams from, you know, from the early eighties or mid eighties. I'm not saying they're not, I'm just saying it's, it's difficult to, to compare because not, forget that the game is so different. It's just that how long players stay in school uh, on average is so different. But still, the bullet points on this team are, are pretty remarkable. Let me walk you through them. You will be aware of, of most of this, if not all of it. But for folks who don't follow it as closely as you, um, I, I think it's worth framing exactly what this team accomplished this year. Obviously, 2018 national champion. Beat Michigan 79-62 late Monday in the title game. Finished this uh, season 36-4. and Finished number one at Ken Palm. And only lost once all season with a starting lineup of Jalen Brunson, Phil Booth, Mikkel Bridges, Eric Paschal, and Omari Spellman. Uh, that one loss came when Butler shot 68% from three-point range against Villanova inside Hinkle Fieldhouse. And even though Butler... Shot 68% from three and made 15 three-pointers in that game. Uh, Villanova still had a chance to win with four minutes to play. Uh, Villanova finished number one in offensive efficiency this season, as you pointed out, with a rating of 127.8, which is 5.1 points better than anybody else in the country this season. Like you said, second highest adjusted offense number Ken Palm has ever recorded. They closed the season on an 11-game winning streak. They finished the season with two wins over the Big East champs, first by 24 points, then by 16 points. Also beat the Big 12 champs by 16 points. Beat the WCC champs by 16 points. Beat the SEC co-champs by 9 points. Beat the Big 10 tournament champs by 17 points. And won all six of their NCAA tournament games by double digits. Those wins came by an average of 17.7 points. I think you can reasonably argue that Villanova 2018 is one of the best, if not the best, college basketball team in the modern era. It's totally valid. And what's so funny about all that is this. So I I thought this team was better than the 2015, 2016 team GP right about the time they beat West Virginia. I I, I said, okay, if they beat Texas tech, they're going to do it. And then when they beat Texas tech, by 12 after having a crappy game the way they did, I, I wrote that night from Boston. Like, I don't know what's going to happen in the Final Four. 
and I understand from the public from the public perception, this team's going to need to get a title to to be considered better than the 2016 team. But I'm not going to wait on a two more game sample size in an, in an elimination tournament. This team right now is better than the 2015-2016 team. But the weird thing about the 2015-2016 team is it won in the final four by 44 points, and that Villanova team. Which which will be remembered for Chris Jenkins winning dramatically and, and beating North Carolina at the buzzer. It was I was talking with uh, associate head coach Ashley Howard after the Texas Tech win. That team as well. See that team wasn't as good in the regular season as this year's team, but in the tournament that team was killing teams. I'm looking at the, I'm looking at it right now. UNC Asheville 86-56. Iowa they won in Brooklyn. I watched both those games. They won by 21 points. They killed Miami. They beat Kansas, which was their one close game in GP if I um you might not have been there, but I think that game was in maybe I think you were there because I believe the Miami and Kansas wins were in Memphis. I think that was the regional that they were at. And then they famously knock out Oklahoma by 44 points in the national semifinals. Uh, which is just obscene. And that was with Buddy Heald and Oklahoma had looked so good heading into it. So there's a parallel between the 2016-2018 teams in terms of most of their NCAA tournament performances. But this team has it over that team. They, They absolutely were able to pull away from every single squad they faced. And... I, I'm not – listen, I, I wasn't on Twitter a lot. I wasn't on social media a lot. I'm going to try and read I, – I like reading sort of the columns and stuff from the title game, and I'll try and do that today and tomorrow. So I haven't ingested a lot of what people are saying about this Villanova team, not just specifically the title game. But it does not feel as though people are, are talking about this team in terms of it being an all-time great. I think that it is, and if, if that's not there outside of what we're hitting on on this podcast – I do think we'll get there in time, and I think the reason why it's not that at this point is there isn't a – listen, Bridge, Mikhail Bridges is going to be a lottery pick this year, but he's not a freak athlete, top five, one-and-done superstar. So they don't have that. They did not – ironically, this might go down as a as – a, if, if Villanova goes on to win the next like three regular season Big East titles, it'll be an interesting factoid that this team did not win the Big East regular season championship. So the fact that it didn't do that maybe hurts them just a smidge, just a little bit. They did have four losses. They didn't enter the national title game with only one or two losses overall. They weren't the number one overall seed. So I think those are the factors that might be going against them just a little bit. But I don't give a damn. I was at that Butler game. Uh, that that Villanova loss, it's it's first of the season and its only loss in the first, what, 23 games of its schedule. And Butler played out of its mind. Paul Jorgensen was burying three-pointers from 40 feet out. It was insane. Uh, But overall, no, this Villanova team is a classic. And I think as we get to, you know, 2026, 2027, we'll look back more fondly on them. Because I also don't think that people, teams are necessarily going to be able to emulate what they do here that easily. I think it's a lot harder said than done to like, oh, we're going to build our team like Villanova and we're going to score and win like Villanova. Some teams can try that and some teams might have some success, but to to hit this level of success, there might be, you know, one or two teams that that play themselves into that sort of model or role uh within the next 3 or 4 years. Well, I I've heard that a lot since Monday night. Like that's the way you play basketball. Well, no, that's the way you play basketball if you have Villanova's players. Like I always get like roll my eyes at people when it comes to the Golden State Warriors. They say, "You know what? You you should play like the Golden State Warriors." Well, yeah, if you've got two of the best shooters in the world, then, then that way works um, a little more difficult when you don't have Steph Curry and Clay Thompson, not to mention Kevin Durant and Draymond Green. Uh, same thing. You want to play like Villanova? Okay. Uh, can you find five players, including a, a big who shoots threes? You get four guys who are above 40% from beyond the arc because that's what they were. 
uh, you you got to have the personnel to do that. Just committing to it with bad shooters is not going to work. They had a uniquely built uh, basketball team, and and they were awesome. To your point about you know not winning the Big East title, it, it is true they didn't win the Big East regular season title. That's only because they, they had to play a game without Eric Pasco and, and Phil Booth. If Phil Booth doesn't get injured, I know you could say this about all sorts of teams, but if Phil Booth never gets injured, they're Big East champions. If 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 Eric Pascal never gets injured, they're Big East champions. I mean, here's the truth: Xavier will forever be known as 2018 Big East champions. Xavier was never the best team in that league. Yeah. Never got swept. Um, by, got swept that, by Nova. Yeah, that that Villanova was the best team in that league. Even if if Xavier gets the the trophy, um, and so what's remarkable about this to me, because the big the big headline is that Villanova has now won two national titles in a three-year period. And, you know, the, uh, only a handful of coaches have, have ever done it in a, you know, won multiple titles in a three-year period. Obviously, Billy Donovan is, is the most recent big example um, with those back-to-back titles at Florida. But he did it with the same team. You know, it was Torian Green and Lee Humphrey and Corey Brewer and Al Horford and Joe Kim Noah. And that team was so unique in the sense that um, they they had multiple players who quote didn't need to go get money in the NBA when it first became available to them. Uh, you know, Noah's father was a you know a successful tennis player, Horford's father also a successful athlete. So they just decided, hey, we're we're having a blast. Let's all come back to school, even though we could all be lottery picks right now, or at least three of them could have been. You know, I, I think I think Joe and Al decided to come back, and then Corey Brewer was like, all right, I'll come back too. Tory Tory and Green Lee Humphrey didn't have anywhere to go, so they just all come back to school. So Billy does have two national titles, but he did it with the same team. This is way different. You go back and look at that 2016 team. Top four scorers on that team: Josh Hart, Chris Jenkins, Ryan Archidiakono, Daniel Sheffu. They got nothing to do with this, and to me, that's the most impressive thing about what Jay has been able to do there. He had totally flipped the roster and yet won another national title. Uh, that That's a difficult thing to do, um, and, and, and I don't know how often it'll be done in the next 20 years, next 30 years. Um, it's why he solidified his place in the Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame the other night. He did that, GP. There's no doubt about that. That's a lock that will be coming at some point in Jay Wright's future. Um, he, I wouldn't say he flipped the roster because they did have, you know, when Jenkins hit that shot, Brunson's in a uniform, Phil Booth, goes and we're going to get to Dante don't worry um Phil Booth goes for 20 in the similar way that Dante went for 31 uh DiVincenzo was on that team played the role of Buddy Heald in the scout before the final four but he didn't run off the bench in a uniform he ran off the bench in a suit because he was a red shirt and that's a common thing with a lot of these players Bridges was in that game he had he had been a red shirt uh Spellman wasn't on that team he was a freshman last year when he was forced to red shirt um so certainly he doesn't he doesn't count but it's he uh, he nurtured that roster, and I actually think that Villanova being as good as it was this year and a- being able to win the title in the fashion that it did, he wound up being helped out a lot by the fact that you had a couple guys that had tournament and Final Four and championship game experience. I do think there is something to be said for that at the college level, especially when it's like Brunson was a solid freshman. Like He wasn't a top-five freshman in America, but he was a solid uh, role-playing freshman, and he grows into the National Player of the Year, and... If I mean, it is ridiculous that Jalen. I I think I might have said this on the podcast. 
or if not, I said it somewhere else. I lose track. But I had said something like, Jalen Brunson doesn't need to have his best game. He can even actually have a subpar game, and Villanova can still win the title over Michigan and maybe even do it easily. That actually happened. Like, Jalen Brunson had one of the three or four worst games of his season, if not of his career, against Michigan, and it did not matter at all. Now, a lot of that was Dante DiVincenzo. And if we can kind of segue to the game just a little bit here, GP, uh, it was nuts to me and in the same thread of which we've been talking about with Villanova. To me, Parrish, like Michigan had the first 12 minutes. I had it in my notes. The first 12 minutes of the game was all Michigan. They were they were commanding the atmosphere, the environment, the acoustics in there. When they were up early, GP, the Alamo Dome was so much louder then than at any point on Saturday. Michigan fans must have been outnumbering Villanova 75-25, and I was like, damn, Michigan is, is in the house. Huge here. But then it was like it didn't even matter. Like, Dante DiVincenzo comes in the game. He hits the three to put him up 23-21. Villanova never trails after that. And it was if Michigan's strong early push. Charles Matthews looks solid. Muhammad Ali Abdur Rahman came up big early. Mo Wagner wasn't showing exactly what he was doing against Loyola, but still he was there. Everything was going well for Michigan. And then once Villanova took the lead, it was as if the first 10 minutes of the game didn't even happen. That, to me, spoke to Villanova's power, that they were able just to do that and make you forget about the first 25% of the game. The idea that they didn't play well and won the national championship by 17 points is remarkable. You know, they, they shoot 41% from three. They shot only 37. Now, 37 is good. But they didn't even shoot their average. And the National Player of the Year was 4 of 13 from the field. They, they weren't sharp. And yet the game was a total no contest after halftime. And even though it was a single-digit game after 20 minutes, it felt over. And there was never a moment in the second half where it didn't feel over. There was never a Michigan run. And this is a Michigan run that, like, a Michigan team that had not lost in 55 days. That was on a 14-game winning streak that had just you know, put together a crazy one, a run, to not only come from behind and beat Loyola Chicago, but cover against Loyola Chicago. So they are capable of, of running off on you, and they never did it. Didn't matter that, that Villanova wasn't shooting the way it normally shoots. Didn't matter that Brunson wasn't playing the way he normally plays, um, largely because of Dante. But just in general, to me, that is, when we look back on this team, I will remember their brilliant performances like the one against Kansas in the Final Four. But what I'll also remember and think special about this team is the way they, uh, uh, the way Butler shot 68% from them, uh, from the three-point line and, and Villanova was still there. The way they were like four of 24 from three-point range, just terrible against Texas Tech, still win by 12. And the way they just turned in an average performance on the first Monday night in April – and still won a national championship game by 17 points. Like, that's how good they were. They didn't even need to play well to win the title by 17 points. Yeah, and Brunson was sitting, I mean, because of where my seat was, I was right behind the Villanova bench. Brunson was sitting on a stool next to the team bench for for minutes at a time, and his attitude was still really positive. Um, They knew they weren't having their best game, and it just... Like this game went from remember how remember early it was it was physical it was chippy Spellman and Wagner got double technicals and then at a certain point Villanova Parish they killed Michigan Spirit they just killed it well I, it just felt like Michigan knew there's nothing we can do here like we're we're outmanned and 
you know, they started taking quick shots. It started, I think they, they got outside of themselves a little bit, mm-hmm. but that's what Villanova does to you. I don't, I don't think Michigan was a poorly coached team that, that lost its way. I think Villanova just puts you in a position where you go, what are we supposed to do? That's certainly the case that, 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 that Kansas put them in. I mean, that they put Kansas in in the national semifinal. Like, it, it, it feel, starts to feel hopeless. And at the collegiate level, I don't know how many teams can make you feel that way. Like, in recent years. At the NBA level, obviously, Golden State for years now has been making people feel like the whole thing is just hopeless. Even if it doesn't feel that way, like, right now. For, for several years now, uh, you get into a game against the Golden State Warriors and it feels hopeless. Villanova is that. Or was that this season at the collegiate level? I don't mean in terms of like I'm not trying to say Villanova is the collegiate level of is the collegiate version of, of the Golden State Warriors. I just mean in this very strict sense, they 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 make you feel like you've got no chance, and and not just they make some mid major feel like they have no chance. They make the Big Twelve champions feel like they have no chance. They make the Big Ten tournament champions feel like they have no chance. Yep, and. Villanova is only the fourth team to go through a six-game tournament, uh, beating all uh, of its opponents by double digits. The last one to do that was North Carolina in 2008-2009. That UNC team, if you put that UNC team, that was when Hansborough was a senior, if you put that team against Nova on a neutral, I might take that Carolina team. That was a really good team. They won their tournament uh, by an average of 20.2 points per game. Villanova this season was 17.7. And who else was on that list? I looked it up. There was, I think, the Duke team of what? When did they win the tournament? 2001. They were close. They were not. They were like 16 points per game and average uh, the average margin of victory for them. Uh, so those are some of the teams. And that Duke team was really, really good. Obviously, had Jay Williams and when he was Jason and Shane Battier on the team overall. Um, but I guess another emblematic thing of, of Villanova's run. This was the kind of one of the guiding points of my of my column after the game was the fact that you had. A man come off the bench, and for and really, like he's just not a starter. The way that Dante DiVincenzo is used is essentially in a starter's role, but doesn't matter. He's a non-starter. He's a, he's a, he is technically a bench player, setting a record, thirty-one points in a title game, smashing the previous mark. Luke Hancock had twenty-two. Yes, Michigan fans, I'm sorry. It also came against you in 2013, um, and it just shows how they really could kill you with anyone. Pascal and Spellman did it against Kansas. You know, Brunson was Brunson. We saw Bridges time and time again this season do what he could do and, 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 in, and in big ways as well. Phil Booth, not just going back to 2016 when he came off the pine and had 20, but Phil Booth, even though he battled through injury, was always the kind of guy that could get you a, a really big bucket in a big minute, kind of the way that Duke over the years has always had a, a classic guy like that. I thought, I thought that Phil Booth was that as well. And Dante DiVincenzo, who we were talking about, a week and a half ago or so, I was talking about it with some writers and saying, hey, he, this dude is going to average like 17-4-4 four and four next year in the Big East and, and probably going to be a preseason like top 20 player on our list. Well, now if he stays, which is also ridiculous, um, if he stays, Parrish, I think we have to have Dante DiVincenzo as like one of the 10 best players in college basketball going ahead, ahead into next season because he showed – 
particularly against Alabama, and some people forget that Alabama game, but Villanova ended up winning it by double digits, but he was big in that game. He was actually arguably their most important player, and I remember talking to him about it after the game, and I, you really got a sense of like, okay, this is, this is kind of nuts that, that Villanova can deploy really much anyone they want to to just kill you if you want. And he did that against Bama, and then he goes for what he does, and it was extremely impressive. Now... If you would ask me before the national title game the chances of Dante DiVincenzo like going pro and not returning to college basketball, I would have said five percent. Now I think it's at like forty percent because if you are that good on that big of a stage in a title game and you're good on both ends of the floor, I mean that one block was absolutely tremendous, and he is already considered a high level athlete. I hope he comes back, and I actually think he'll have a good chance of being drafted fairly highly in 2019 if he does come back. But, GP, what are your thoughts on that and just overall the fact that uh, that the best performance came from the big ragu, who uh, who obviously has been pretty good for a while here? I guess I would say this. Um, I don't care what he does. He should do whatever he whatever is best for him and whatever he desires. If that's coming back to school, great. If it's entering the NBA draft, wonderful. Um, but from an NBA perspective, I'll tell you this. If, if I were a front office and I didn't have him in the top 30 before Monday night, I am not changing my opinion on him um, drastically based on one performance. Like I, I think that is the mistake NBA front offices make too often. Um, what we saw the other night was the very best version of him. Um, you know, I guess you could have watched the first half of the 2013 national championship game and and thought that Spike was on his way to being a first team All American, but like that was just that was one night. And I'm not saying this was one night for Dante. He's obviously very very good and obviously a legitimate NBA prospect. But I would be hesitant to to change my opinion on him drastically uh, based on what happened in the championship game. The the last guy who was amazing in an NCAA tournament game and saw his NBA. Um, uh, stock go drastically up and ended up being a first round pick. Let me try and guess. Hold on. I'm trying to think who you get. The, so we're talking, we're talking about the last, first of all, love it. An impromptu trivia time here. The last guy who was, this is what I'm saying. Okay. A guy who was not necessarily considered a lot to enter the NBA draft. In fact, most people thought he probably wouldn't. And then he balled out in a very specific tournament game. And then it was like, he's got to go. And then somebody took him in the first round Who's that guy? Um, was is it within the past three years? Yes. Okay. Um, who would it have been? And they were abnormally good in a tournament game. Yes. Jeez, who would this have been? Um, just give me a quick second to 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 scan my brain. Who would have been abnormally good in a tournament game? And Final Four title game? GP or no? No. Okay. But when I say it, you're going to go, oh, yeah, of course. Really? Uh, I wonder if the listeners have already identified this guy. I want to get a guess up, but I, GP, I should know this, and I, it's just not – it's nothing – the only one that comes to mind – well, and, like, the ju- jury's still out on him, I guess, but Zach Collins was good enough, but he wasn't – it wasn't uh, – that wasn't a non-Final Four – uh, title game. So lay it Zach, on. Zach Collins would be a good guess, yeah. um, but that's not who I'm thinking of. Lay it on me. Malachi Richardson. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. And guess I, he's out of the NBA now. That is a great point. So yeah. just like, be careful if you're an NBA front office, like, and uh, all I'm saying is this, Dante has been playing for a top five team all season. 
that had Mikkel Bridges on it all season. So the NBA people have seen him all season. And I don't think they'll get swayed nearly as much as the public has been swayed on Dante. There are people tweeting about Dante on Monday night who, would, who couldn't have told you his name on Monday morning, right? Yeah. He became super famous Monday night. So I, I don't know how drastically it's going to affect his NBA plans. Um, surely, uh, Certainly he has to consider it. I mean, you'd, you'd be foolish not to. There's, there's a lot of money at stake here. And if somebody tells him he's going to be a first-round pick and he, that's what he wants to go do, I'll wish him all the luck in the world. But my guess would be at this point he's going to be back in school. So let me ask you this. Yep. Based on what happened Monday night, does he return as the, the face of college basketball, the most famous person in college basketball? I think that is the case here. Um because there's so much roster turnover in this sport, unlike any other mainstream sport in America, well, hmm. that we, we don't have much uh, carryover from one year to the next. But I think Dante is, is going to be that carryover. He's the carryover, and this is why. And that, like, I think he'll, he will return. Um, and that, it, it, this set up beautifully for college basketball because you had this with Grayson Allen, who was half as good uh, for Duke in that title game as Dante was for Villanova in this title game. Um, now, Grayson also stepped up at playing for Duke. And Villanova is obviously at the top of the sport right now, but it just does not have as – it does not command as big of an audience, or and people don't hate Villanova uh, the way they obviously hate Duke. But to have Dante come by – and, you know, the red hair, the big ragu, all this stuff is certainly going to help. Villanova is going to be really, really good again. Um, that's going to be key. And he will enter in – yes, he he's he, his rise to fame was – Immediate and was it was actually interesting. I I interviewed him on the floor after he cut the net for CBS Sports HQ. Him and Brunson and Spellman, but one on Dante. He was uh, I almost think he wasn't even able to intake everything that had just happened. He was he was very calm. It was as if I was interviewing him after a home win by 15 in early January, and um, I thought that was a pretty cool, maybe even a good sign there overall. Brunson, my by the way. Uh, I didn't know this. He might have told media this 15 times over the years, and I just I wasn't aware of it. But um, so they they were in the same class. But uh, Dante redshirted, and he, when he found out Dante was coming to Villanova, Brunson said, "Oh hell no," because he said he was too good. Like he was too good of a player. He didn't want to have to. He was half joking, but he didn't want to have to compete with a guy that good for playing time because he knew how good Dante was. And they've roomed together. They've been roommates, and they're really really close. And Brunson was uh, extremely happy for his buddy there. And in fact. I don't know if the cameras caught this, GP, and sorry for the ramble, but when the game was ending and after Brunson had played just a terrible game, for the he was emotive early on. Like I'm sure the cameras caught it where he was just smacking the ball, and he was, he was more demonstrative than I've ever seen him. But after this entire college career where Jalen Brunson is just so straight-lined and such a steady player, it was intriguing to see him in the title game be uh, that demonstrative. And then at the end, he broke down. I mean, he was crying uh, more than any other player. Him and Pascal were the two that I caught um, shedding a lot of tears. And with Brunson, it was so selfless, really spoke to a lot of who he is. He was so happy for his friend to have played the way that he did. I thought that was, uh, I thought that was pretty interesting um, and pretty heartfelt overall. And that's an, uh, that's an extended answer of you just setting up for next season with, with Dante and Villanova. But I just thought that was... That was a really cool thing, and Brunson really – he has completed a, a fantastic, fantastic college career, and in an ironic way, this team will be remembered for Brunson more than anyone else, but now the, the Dante 
performance in the title game is is going to be right there with with all of it. The first thirty point game, thirty one point game since eighty nine, and all that. And so I thought it was fitting that these two guys who came in together were roommates, wound up being you know key parts, defining parts to the season for the Wildcats. So it's the best night of of Dante's life. You know, he's the most outstanding player of the Final Four after getting thirty one points off the bench to win a national championship. And then it turned into a, a bit of a scandal. And I'm not sure you're aware of this, given that you slept like 12 hours and just woke up a minute ago. Do you know about the Twitter thing? Okay, so glad you asked all of this. Um, I do know about it, but just let me – I don't. I do, but I don't. So the game ends, and I got to – I you know, I file the story. I got to get on the floor, and it's the GP just – it's the first time I've ever had to do something like this. So I'm like, holy crap, like how am I going to get these players? But I tell you what. The CBS logo and the mic flag, and having one of our on on court producer guys, he was awesome. Um, and David Warlock with the NCAA, thank you. He was instrumental. He said, "Whoever you need, I'll get you them." And sure enough, I was able to get the MOP. So I interview him, and as I think, like all this is going on, and I'm not next to my computer, I'm not really checking my phone. The Twitter sleuths and narcs start coming out, and this is this is a awful trend of social media, but it's also a cautionary tale. So I'm not aware of any of this, okay? And then I do the interviews. I go back to media availability. I write, I start writing my, my column, and then I've, I just bring up Twitter eventually at some point. I see the Villanova tweet. Hey, these tweets from Dante DiVincenzo, his account was hacked tonight, and he hasn't used the account in years or whatever. And then I sent it in our Slack channel. Hey, guys, I don't know what this is about, but because we tend to just write on these quick hit viral stuff. And then... Someone says, like, what's Villanova doing? Like, this, these were not new tweets. These were old tweets. And so I am aware of the fact that he used derogatory language when he was, like, 13, 14. And you can set up and comment on all this. The one thing I will say, and by the way, if there's more GP, I don't know about it, is, first of all, if you're, if you're potentially going to be famous, delete all your old tweets right now. But two... You should not be using uh, what a 13-year-old who had Twitter at the time or a 14-year-old who had Twitter at the time be using that against him. He was young and stupid and idiotic. And um, if you or I were 14 years old and had a social media device, we probably would have tweeted some really stupid stuff overall. So um, I didn't think it was the moment or appropriate to kind of go after him. I think he got asked about this. I wasn't there when it happened. I guess it is legitimate to ask him about it, but it also isn't relevant to what was happening there. And I'm sure he would have instantly regretted it by the age of 17, let alone 20. So that's my pre-response to how you're setting up everything here. I'm not fully aware of, I guess, the entire situation. The reporter was from USA Today. His name is Josh Peter, and he should be embarrassed. Uh, you, you say that maybe it's the right place to ask him about that. I say absolutely not. It's a non-story. And it's dirty business. And he should be ashamed. Um, you know, that young guy had an incredible night. And it ended with him probably in something close to a panic attack with people t taking a tweet out of context from years ago and turning it into something it wasn't. Uh, for folks who don't know the story, when he was 14 or 15 years old, uh, Dante DiVincenzo tweeted, uh, bawling on these ends like I'm Derrick Rose. It's a lyric from a Meek Mill song, and um, it, once you acknowledge that, you you know it's not it's not him being racist. Mm -hmm. It's it's him quoting a lyric, like, um, you know, if 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 my wife, who's a big Beatles fan, tweeted "Let it be," she's just quoting a Beatles song. 
he was just quoting a Meek Mill track. And that is vastly different than somebody being caught on tape talking about um, I hate these stupid ends or whatever racist thing some racist might say. And if you're an adult, particularly a college-educated adult who works in the media, you should be smart enough to understand that. That that, that, that wasn't um, a tweet rooted in racism. It was a tweet from a teenager quoting a rap lyric. And it doesn't mean that it's okay. Like, I listen to hip-hop as much as if I listen to anything these days, probably more than I listen to anything. Um, that word is used in by most of my favorite artists in most of my favorite tracks. Um, I know that if I'm uh, going to jump on Twitter and, 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 quote, uh, and quote Kanye West, uh, I cannot use, um, you know, I'm just a small, I'm just a shy town in with a Nas flow. I, I know I can't tweet that. I know that if I'm like at the gym and I've got headphones on and I'm rapping along to, to that song, I can't say those words out loud. Uh, I know better. Uh, but is a 14-year-old supposed to? I, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I walked into my son's, my oldest son's room one day. And he was laughing, looking at his phone and laughing at something. This is several years ago, so he's like 10 years old. And I said, what are you laughing at? And he showed me. And I don't know what sort of app he was on or social media site, but I'm just speaking candidly here. And it was a Photoshop picture, and it had two basketball players clearly like both reaching for a loose ball, but the loose ball was a bucket of chicken. And he was laughing. And I said, what are you, what are you laughing at? And he said, look, Dad, they're like both like fighting over that chicken. And I said, why do you think that's funny? He's like, because they're fighting over chicken. That's, he's 10 years old. He didn't have any idea of the racial context of that. And I sat him down and I said, listen, first off, delete that now. Because um, I think he had posted it to some social media site. It's 10 years old. And I said, let me explain to you what that is and what that means and why that's not funny and why that's not acceptable and why if you have a friend who sent you that, um, then we need to talk to that friend's parents because that's not okay. Because you also have to keep in mind we live in the South and that stuff still like is probably here a little more. It's where you live in Connecticut. And my son sincerely apologized very quickly. He was embarrassed. He felt a little, I think, dumb and, and a little ashamed. And we've never had a problem with him like that at all since then. And we never will because that's not, that's not our household. Um, but imagine if he became a basketball player someday. And imagine if I'd never walked in in that moment. And imagine if some stupid-ass reporter from USA Today decided to go searching through my son's you know, history of social media posts, and he found that, and then tried to frame my son as a racist. What? Like, I thought that was shameful the other night. It is true that, you, you, you know, as a white person, it does not matter what you think is right or wrong, fair or unfair. You cannot tweet the N-word or say the N-word. Like, that's it just – and by the way, don't even try to argue that point. You won't win it. Just leave it alone. But, to, but that 14-year-old kid wasn't just out there talking about his, the stupid ends that go to his school. He was quoting Meek Mill. It, it, Meek Mill was clearly an artist that he liked. That song was clearly a song that he liked. 
He was quoting it the same way I might have quoted if we had social media when I was 14 years old, Axl Rose. Um, and to you try to use that against him and to try to frame him as something he's not, and especially to do it on a night like Monday night, like shameful. That guy, and I, I, I've crossed paths with Josh before. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I don't even mind if he hears this. He should be embarrassed. I thought that was an awful, awful thing to do. Yeah, I don't have any sort of perspective on, I guess, how the story played out in real time because I wasn't using social media at all. I was under the impression that DiVincenzo had derogatory terms against homosexuals and there were other things that were on his feed that have since been deleted and could have all been things that he tweeted or responded to when he was a eighth grader or freshman in high school. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it just, it was very narky kind of gotcha. Hey, listen, you're having a great night, but can you answer to this? If you're running for a public office and it's something that you posted to Facebook when you were 23, then it's 1000% valid. But that I was, agree. That, that wasn't this. Okay. It wasn't this at all. And honestly, like. Sure, you know, be responsible and, and, and atone for your actions and all that stuff. But we have to allow for, um, frankly, to, speak, to, to kids to be idiots when they are the age that you will be an idiot. And you really just have not gotten a grasp on what is appropriate, what isn't. Uh, and that is your, you know, your middle school and early, early high school years are your formative years. Those are the years when you are most vulnerable to social influence and to peer pressure and to maybe say and do things that make you feel a little uncomfortable, but they help you go with the crowd or get the kind of friends that you want to get. These are all things that impact who you are and help better shape and define you as you graduate from high school and then get into college and then learn how to mature and be an actual adult. So, no, we should not be holding Dante against that. And it kind of sucks that that probably... I mean, think about when you've done something wrong, you know you've done something wrong, and you wish you could change it, and how terrible that feels in the moment. I'm sure on some level, Dante had a really bittersweet night on Monday going into Tuesday, because then this became a thing, and you've got people asking you about it, people posting about it. Um, that, that kind of sucked overall. I'm glad we got to that, GP. In fact, it was completely off my radar when we started the podcast, but it obviously wound up being a talking point, um, and I've only ever heard good things about Dante. My interactions with him have always been good. I mean, as I said, like he handled that situation on the floor with the interview afterward uh, uh, bizarrely uh, maturely, almost like, dude, you just won the title. You put up 31. And he was like, man, it's a, my teammates found me. I have I give nothing but credit to uh, my guys with Jalen and Spellman. We, we played together. It was a super impressive interview, and that speaks more to him, so much more of who he is versus, you know, three or four tweets when he was just entering high school and didn't even know who he was going to become. I, I said things, I'm sure, when I was 14 that I would be ashamed of now. Um, I, thank God. You know, Twitter wasn't a thing then. Um, I thought things when I was 14 that I would be ashamed of now. Thank God Twitter wasn't a thing uh, back then. Um, you know, your, your views on all sorts of things. Because I'm, I'm conceding the point. That first off, the Meek Mill lyric was just the Meek Mill lyric. It was not a ra- That was not rooted in racism. He's just quoting a song. But there was apparently also some derogatory things about uh, about gays on the Twitter feed. And I would just say this, your, your views on the world and social issues tend to, not always, but they tend to change 
over time as you mature, but also as the years change, as the calendar turns. You know, kids growing up today have vastly different views about uh, race and about um, homosexuality than, than, than kids had when I was growing up or when you were growing up. That's just, that's just true. Um, and, and so it, I, I just think holding a 20-year-old or 21-year-old accountable for something they tweeted when they were 14, 13, you know, in that age range is just like, it, unless you didn't think or say things when you were 13, 14, 15 that you wouldn't also be ashamed of, um, it, it's dirty business. I, I just thought that was an awful, awful thing to do. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing if like some, you know, the, off the, you know, off the path, you know, blog, you know, dives into it because they, they don't hold themselves to any real standards other than let's see if we can create a headline and, and grab some page views, but a legitimate news source like USA today, like going that direction. I don't know. I would have just, uh, if I were his editor, I would have said no. And if I was, a, if, if I were somebody on that desk, I would have pushed back against it. Really? Like, what are we doing here? Yeah. That's the other question. What are we accomplishing? What are we proving here? Are we proving that Dante DiVincenzo is a racist by, 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 by pointing out that when he was 14 years old, he quoted a Meek Mill track? Like, what are we accomplishing here? And if, unless you can give me a good answer, in fact, I'll ask you that question. What does that accomplish? Uh, and nothing, unless you are, exp- if you, unless you are what actually we- exposing uh, something of legitimate news value, which was not there, then nothing other than embarrassing the kid and getting him to quote on the record about a trendy viral story that was based on little merit or validity to begin with. Yeah, I think you and I agree here. Um, we can we can move on. Remember, there's a new way to get the latest scores, news, and highlights for all your favorite sports at CBS Sports HQ, which is a 24-7 streaming channel covering the biggest games, best plays, and crucial insights from around sports. You can stream it free anytime. On the CBS Sports app for Apple TV, Roku, Amazon Fire, your phone, and other connected devices. Or you can just watch it online at CBSSportsHQ.com. That's CBSSportsHQ.com. I'm on there all the time. Norlander is on there all the time. So check it out if you get a chance, if you haven't already. I think you'll like it. CBS Sports HQ online. CBSSportsHQ.com. So uh, we've looked back on the national champions. um, But the season in general, you know, it's now over. And it really does, though I'm exhausted and I was ready for it to be over, it does sort of feel like it, it's, it's flown by. It, it feels like just a you know, few days ago we were dealing with the start of an FBI scandal. That happened, obviously, in the preseason. And so we deal with the, the fallout from that and the cloud that um, it creates. And then we get to the actual preseason polls, and Duke is number one. And then pretty quickly – you know, while you were out in Oregon at the PK-80, Trey Young becomes the story of college basketball. And then, not too long after that, his team starts to fall apart a little bit. He starts to fall a little apart a little bit. Uh, not so much that he wasn't still a first-team All-American, because he was, along with two other freshmen, namely DeAndre Ayton and, and Marvin Bagley. Um, but he fell off a little bit, which opens up National Player of the Year Awards for, for Jalen Munson. You know, the story, you know, was, was Virginia – you know, being the number one overall seed, then the story became Virginia, uh, being the first number one seed to ever lose to a 16. Sister Jean became a phenomenon. Villanova wins the national championship. When you look back on this season, and those are just some bullet points, mm-hmm. 
But when you look back on the season, um, we didn't know where the storylines would come from. But man, we got it. We got a whole bunch of storylines through, you know, from from November till till early April. We got them all over the place. And yeah, the the weekend of the final four parish. I think I only speak for myself and not necessarily you and maybe some other media members, but it's it's bittersweet. And in the moment, like I know I speak for you here because we're on the same page, like you want it to end because it's like it's it's so much it's at once and you've been working a long season and you're ready for it to end. But I almost I almost never want it to end at the same time because uh, the thrill of a Final Four leading to a national championship, um, I love the energy and buzz of that, but you it does – GP, it goes by the season goes by fast. Like it, it doesn't feel like PK eighty was as long ago as it actually was. I, I think back to us talking about the FBI investigation on the podcast and Patino getting fired, and I can't believe that was when. I, I guess the way I can best put it is like, you know, I was fortunate enough to get my first house, and all of that happened at the same time. And I just can't believe it's been that long since I was talking to you in this room. I'm talking to you now about that on the podcast it's it's bizarre what the season was and how we thought the FBI investigation would potentially hover over the sport more than it actually did until we got to I mean here's some here's some points you mentioned a few of them the Trey Young thing was it it, it took over even more than I thought it would because I at being at PK 80 um I knew like I sat down with Trey for about an hour to talk to him for a, a profile because I figured Trey Young's going to end up being he's going to be a thing here uh he was five times as big of a thing as I thought he was going to be. Um, and with him, you had Bagley and you had DeAndre Ayton. And we had another year in which we had three elite, mainstream, headline-grabbing, general public knows who they are, freshmen. And it was Trey Bagley and then Ayton, who was an absolute beast. And I'll get to him in just a second in terms of why everyone knows him. Um, you also had Arizona State get to number three in the country. Uh, you had them win at Kansas, and Kansas, by the way, you know them losing three times at home at Fog Allen Fieldhouse, unprecedented. They still go, on, still go on to win the Big Twelve regular season tournament, Big Twelve regular season or Big Twelve regular season title, Big Twelve tournament, get the number one seed, make a Final Four, all is good. Auburn was caught up in the FBI scandal, and they go on to have a pretty good seed. And although they slipped a little bit, Bruce Pearl saves his job. I will say this on the podcast now because it looks like he's going to be okay. But and I, we even talked about it, I think, in certain terms. But I'm telling you, in the middle of in the middle of December, even as Auburn is doing all this, plenty of people thought that Bruce Pearl was not going to be able to save his job. It just was not going to happen. It was not going to be tenable. They're going to have an AD change. A new AD was going to come in. You had all this. He wasn't fully cooperating with their investigation. As we sit here today on Wednesday, April 4th, Bruce Pearl has gotten a vote of confidence from his athletic director who has spoken on the record about all this, and it seems like Bruce Pearl is going to stay there. That obviously brings plenty of interest for the sport and that school and Bruce overall going forward. Um, And then you get the Michigan State stuff, which was propelled by ESPN, which those people inside of Michigan State are still very angry about in terms of how it was framed with the Larry Nasser stuff. Some of those complaints are absolutely legitimate. Um, some things still probably need to be answered uh, for by Tom Izzo at this point. He said he would speak to some of the stuff he still publicly has not. So we wait and see when that time comes, if it will be this offseason or not. But the Michigan State thing obviously took over college basketball for a short while. And then, finally, Yahoo releases a story. Uh, it was at about like five. I sat with Pat Forty on Wednesday night at the Final Four. He said he thinks they hit publish 
at 5.53 Eastern in the morning on that story. Um, and that's just, you know, a lot of that stuff didn't lead to any uh, real repercussions other than Eric Davis, who's now going pro out of Texas. Everyone else, every other player who had a family member or was, or was put on that report through ASM's documents, there was a frenzy around them, but their cases were cleared because, as we saw, talked about so much on this podcast, a lot of that stuff should be above board in the NCAA's eyes anyway. And, hey, maybe soon it will be. But that story comes out at 5.53 a.m. on a Friday. And then, GP, what, 16 hours later, ESPN pops up with a story about Sean Miller being caught on a wiretap discussing a $100,000 payment to get DeAndre Ayton to Arizona, the details of which, obviously, uh, Sean Miller disputes. Sean Miller goes from the presumption of being fired within a matter of hours to still being the Arizona coach today, and that whole thing puts DeAndre Ayton, a front-and-center name. His Sean Miller, Arizona, DeAndre Ayton are on national newscasts. He winds up playing, winds up playing his best basketball of the season, puts Arizona on a fast track to a Pac-12 championship and a trendy pick to, to get to the Final Four. That obviously doesn't happen. Those were the other big, huge storylines that played out pre-NCAA tournament. It has been a season unlike any other I have ever seen or covered. And um, I don't know what's going to be coming here in the offseason. But it was uh, it was intriguing. I found us, GP, as we kind of reflect here. I remember when we were talking about doing three podcasts a year this season and being willing to do that, but at certain points us being like, you know, with the way that we talk to each other on this thing, like, let's just try and – this is such a silly thought. Let's just try and keep these things to 30 minutes. Well, we did not do that, um, even though maybe we would have been bettered uh, for our own personal calendars, Parish, if we had. But we were offered up so much stuff on a weekly basis with just either on the court or off the court storylines that it that uh, it was good that we made the decision to do that as we have because this has been a uh, – this has been a crazy year. So that's that's kind of my overarching wrap-up. I think we've touched on a lot of things from the season. I mean, I might be missing one or two things. But in terms of the big-picture stuff, I think that's most of it. Yeah, and you know, like you said, now we're in the off-season. And we're going to continue this podcast uh, throughout the off-season, certainly not three times a week. Uh, hell no. But but at the very least, once a week, we, we will have an episode of the Ion College Basketball Podcast. And last off-season was wild because – we had, you know, Thad Mata get fired in June. You know, you don't get coaches fired without scandal in June very often. So we had that. And then in July, we had, you know, Marvin Bagley is trying to reclassify. So number one player in the country trying to reclassify. And, and then he obviously does and ends up at Duke. And that makes Duke the number one team in the country. And then we also got the scandal, of course. So I don't know um, if this offseason will be similar to last offseason, but last offseason was, um, you know, was was very, very busy. I guess I'm hoping on some selfish level that this one's not so much. If I can tie that real quick, two thoughts to last season and the Final Four. So I did the I did the story on Luke Yoklich, the Michigan assistant who came from Illinois State. The very first game that he would have, or the first event, the first thing, the first whatever that he was associated with, like, being a Michigan coach, was he got, that day in in Vegas, he meets with John Beeline, and Beeline's like, let's do it, let's get you the job. He was at Zion versus LaMelo that night, 
That's yeah. another thing, right? I mean, we're talking about a wild offseason. We had the offseason of Lavar and Lonzo exactly. and Lamelo and all that. Yeah, exactly. So that was. So the 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 assistant coach who was who played a, a pretty critical role as a defensive mind in making the best Michigan defensive team ever under Beeline, if we are really encompassing the past off season into what we just saw play out Monday night, uh, he was in the building at the Cashman Center that night when that was going on. And imagine just like imagine going from Illinois State to being hired by uh, John Beeline, considered really just top of the shelf kind of coach. And you're like, all right, I'll get to the Cashman Center tonight, and that's the first. That's like the first thing that you're that you're encountering uh, as a Michigan coach. I thought that was just pretty interesting overall. But yeah, it's been overall GP. We have not been short on things to talk about, which has been obviously has been great for college hoops. All right, I think we've looked back enough. I want to look ahead a little bit, but first, let me tell you about SeatGeek. Buying tickets online can be complicated, but doesn't have to be. Not with SeatGeek, and that's because you know SeatGeek uh, is going to search multiple ticket sites for you. That way you know you're getting the best prices, best seats, best value. It's going to save you time, and it's going to save you money. And if you're looking for tickets to anything, I mean anything, you'll want to go to SeatGeek first. It's where I go. It's where Norlander goes. In fact, uh, earlier today I had a buddy ask me, hey, you work for CBS. Do you got any master's tickets? I was like, no, you know what? I don't have master's tickets, but I know where I can tell you to go find them. Go to SeatGeek. So he went to SeatGeek, and he hit me back. He said a four-day badge. Let me ask you how much you think it is. Four-day badge, Thursday, Friday, uh-huh. Saturday, Sunday, get you into Augusta National. What's it available for at SeatGeek right now? Uh, I'm going to – GP, I'm going to guess it's the Masters, which is actually gets good pub for its affordable food options. I think the menu prices have barely changed over the past 50 years, but I think the badge is a different story. So a blind guess for me on a four-day badge to attend the Masters off SeatGeek, I'll say, is $1,400. <laughs> Uh, nope, it's uh seventy eight hundred. Oh my good lord! <laughs> you want to go see Tiger at the Masters? You can get tickets at SeatGeek right now <laughs> for seventy eight hundred dollars. I said fourteen hundred. Oh my gosh, that's it's horrendous. it's super expensive. I am gonna go someday. I've never been to the Masters, um, but um, you know, I I think I could get access to Augusta National via CBS. I'm told that I could. It's just so hard. It's the weekend after. Yep. The final four, and you just feel like I've been gone forever. How do I tell my wife I'm going out of town again? How do I tell my children I'm going out of town again? So I think I would at the very least have to take my wife, which would be fun. She would enjoy it. Uh, but I'm going to go do that one day, and I will try to use every CBS Connect I have because I cannot pay $7,800 to go to uh, the Masters. But you can, and you can do it by searching SeatGeek right now, not just for Masters tickets, but anything. NBA tickets, uh, Major League Baseball tickets, whatever you're after – Check SeatGeek first and use promo code COLLEGEBB because if you use promo code COLLEGEBB, you're going to get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. So make sure to use that promo code COLLEGEBB. That's SeatGeek, millions of tickets in one place. I published the CBS Sports preseason top 25 and one on Monday night, and it is true that usually um, you and I do this together, and yet we didn't really do it together this year, mostly because uh, I feel bad asking you to to help me because my name's going to be on it that is mostly attached to me um and and you you're you're you know you're busy doing a million things and so it's uh, fine gp i i i had listen your name your name's on it you get the, you get the credit for the clicks and i'm busy at the final four so if i'm going to spend six hours doing this and i'm not getting a byline 
and I already got a thousand things to do. It just is what it is. So in, right, in that, yeah, and that, that, that's my point. Like I didn't even ask you this season because I I felt guilty doing it. Like I'm on a television set, uh, separate from you for like twelve hours a day. You're grinding, writing stories, doing HQ hits for like twelve hours a day. I I didn't want to then ask you, hey, I've got a little free time off TV. Why don't you come sit down with me for six hours and help go through rosters? Like you got your own stuff to do. So um. In the spirit of full disclosure, I sat down with our old colleague, Sam Bassini, who's now at The Athletic, on, I guess it was Sunday early evening uh, when we finished our final television show of the day. And um, he and I just just went through it, you know, bouncing rosters off each other, you know, um, ideas off each other. And we have both released, um, for him, a preseason top 25, uh, for us a, a top 25 and one. And I put Kansas number one based on, yes, losing Devontae Graham, Sweet Makai Luke, and I think Malik Newman as well. Um, but they, uh, according to my projections, would bring back uh, LeGerald Vick, uh, Yudoki, uh, Yudoka Azabuki, um, uh, and, and then enroll a top 10 recruiting class with two five star guards, and then get eligible Diedrich Lawson, who I think could be the Big 12 player of the year, KJ Lawson, and Charlie Moore from Cal. Uh, my argument would be that Kansas checks every box. You know, they've got a guy who's already won a national championship, who's already in the Hall of Fame at coach. Um, they've got one-and-done prospects in Clint Grimes and Devin Dodson. And they've got experience in Azabuki and Vic. And then they've got older players that are technically newcomers but experienced at the collegiate level and accomplished at the collegiate level in Diedrich Lawson, K.J. Lawson, and Charlie Moore. If you were doing this separate from me, would you would you also have Kansas number one or somebody else? Um, I think I was because well before well first of all you came out you actually came out and socialized after you did this. Check my Twitter feed for the bucket hat, which is obviously ridiculous. But GP, you do you. Um, before I saw you though, uh, I was with Jeff Borzello, Rob Doster, and we were trying to figure out who you were going to have in your top three, and our prediction for you was going to be Duke. I'm glad that you did not go Duke there because I would not have Duke number one. I don't think that their class next year is as good as the class they had this year, and they lose Grayson Allen. Uh, so Duke, to me, has no business being a preseason number one. There isn't a Marvin Bagley the third type, even loitering in the wings, potentially joining the roster late. So I don't think that you can make the case for the Blue Devils there. Um, so we thought you were going to do that, but I'm glad you didn't. Kansas, I don't have an issue at number one. I actually my and I don't I have not looked for the purposes of I knew we were going to talk about this on the podcast. I know your top five and you had sprinkled in a few thoughts like I know you've got Cincinnati as your twenty six team, but I did not look at your ratings yet because I actually wanted to discuss, maybe just chat through this quickly about who you have in and who you don't have in. But at for the for the discussion at the top, I think Kansas is a fair pick given how much they have coming in available after redshirting this year, some quality coming in on the recruiting trail. I think that makes a decent amount of sense. In some years, I feel like figuring out a top 25, you're like, man, these teams like 15 to 25, they're kind of, they're kind of trash, <laughs> which is never the case. Like then we get to, then we obviously we get to February and we're like, no, these teams are actually good. But this year, actually, I feel like it's, it's tougher to say the top of college basketball is going to be uh, like, you know, cream of the crop versus the, the top 25, it looks like it's going to be okay. Um, that said, you do have Duke number two, which I would still push back on. 
I would have a hard time putting Duke top three overall. I think I would have Villanova number two. Where do you have Villanova now, and where do you have them with which players coming back? Okay, so the top three. Kansas one, Duke two, Villanova three. And I've got Duke losing their entire starting lineup, and I agree completely with you on the the idea that Duke can't be number one. Sam Vecini actually did make Duke number one. And I'm just saying, like, if if for the past two years we have made Duke the preseason number one based largely on um, a recruiting class, and this recruiting class isn't as good, at least I don't think, as the last one. Like, I don't think anybody in this class is as good as Marvin Bagley, and I'm not 100% sure Anybody in this class will be as good as Wendell Carter. I mean, I think R.J. Barrett probably will. But I don't – how about this? Who's better, Cam Reddish or Wendell Carter? Uh, Wendell Carter is better to me. I think so too, right? So I don't think this class is as good, and you lose Grayson Allen. The way you could justify last year doing it was, hey, they have a senior presence, all-American type guy in Grayson Allen to go with these elite-level recruits. But I think last season's class is better. And there is no Grayson Allen. So I was not going to put Duke one, but clearly I didn't drop him too far. I still put him <laughs> yeah. at two based on you know, they're just super duper talented. And by the way, for those screaming like Duke, Duke underachieved this year. Duke finished third at Ken Palm. Mm-hmm. Like they lost in overtime to a number one seed in the Elite Eight. Like get out of my face. Duke was fine. If Grayson Allen ball that hit the rim 74 different times falls in, Duke's in the final four, and then who knows what happens. But you know, Duke finished third at Ken Palm. Duke was good. Uh, when, when you are the preseason number one, all that should mean, really, is that you should be a legitimate national title contender when March rolls around. And Duke quite clearly was any way you measure it. Um, but I wasn't going to make them number one again, so number two is fine. And then Villanova at number three, and I've got them at number three despite losing – uh, you know, it's, it's projected this way. Jalen Brunson, Mikel Bridges, and Omar, Omari Spellman. It is true. I don't think there's a good chance Brunson comes back. I don't think there's a good chance. I don't think there's any chance Bridges comes back. I could see Spellman coming back, but my understanding is he's leaning toward leaving. So that would mean they would bring back Dante DiVincenzo, Eric Paschal, Phil Booth, Colin Gillespie, uh, Jermaine Samuels. They would add, among others, Javon Quinterly, who might be better equipped to be impactful as a freshman than Brunson even was. He, I believe he's more heralded coming out of high school than Brunson was, even though Brunson was a five-star guy. And so I, I think once you recognize Jay Wright won a national championship in 2016, and the top four scorers from that team had nothing to do with his national championship team in 2018, uh, there's something to be said for culture. There's something to be said for development. And if you just tell me that they've got DiVincenzo, Pascal, and Booth, basically three starter-level guys or three of the top six from this team that was quite clearly the best team in the country, I don't see any reason they can't be a top three team in a country again. And I, I, and I also take into account I don't know who in the Big East is going to be able to, to push them because mm-hmm. I don't have another Big East team in the top 25 and one. So I think they're going to win the Big East, win a lot of games, and – you know, they're going to be hovering around the top five all season long, even if they lose Brunson, Bridges, and Spellman. No problem with it all. Colin Gillespie, yes, a Ryan Archidiacono clone. Uh, Demir Cosby, Roundtree got some solid minutes. And then Jermaine Samuels, who didn't play a lot this year, but I saw him on the trail. I think he'll actually grow into a, a solid sophomore and a really good junior. They've got three good freshmen who are going to, who are going to mature well, I think. So, yeah, I, I absolutely. I would have Villanova number two uh, if I was doing the rankings. Who do you have rounding up your top five slash top ten? Because I think your number four team is crazy, but let's get into it. 
Well, the number four team is not going to be the number four team by the you know by the time I get off this podcast and I'm able to update. Oh, because okay. <laughs> what has happened? Uh, Auburn is number four, and Mustafa Heron has just announced that he is entering the NBA draft and signing with an okay. agent. Okay. So that gives me if I don't if I need an excuse, like as I um, just you know as I make clear every time we do this, um, this is a work in progress. I will update you know every time that de- news developments um, uh, dictate that I should. For instance, I post this on Monday night. By Tuesday afternoon, I had already updated because uh, who at Louisville announced that they were in the NBA draft? I can't even keep Spalding. track. Spalding. Yeah, Ray Spalding, right? So that that matters. So I dropped Louisville down to 23, I think, in the top 25 and one. And now Auburn losing its best player off of this past team's team that won um, a share of the SEC title. Well, now they've got a drop. So Auburn will no longer be four, which means Tennessee is now going to be four. They bring back basically everybody from a team that was top, I think, 15 at Ken Palm and certainly was co-SEC champions. Uh, Kentucky will move up to five. Um, Gonzaga will move up to six. Virginia will probably move up to seven. At some point, I'll find a spot for Auburn. Uh, But right now, I've got North Carolina nine and Nevada ten. Now, that Nevada is based on the Martin Twins coming back, Jordan Caroline coming back. All three have already announced they're entering the NBA draft but not signing with an agent. It's possible that you know all three go, and especially the Martins, because they've now done four years of college, even though they've got one year of eligibility remaining. And my understanding is they will be graduating, so they might just reach a point of there's nothing else for our, us to do. But if Eric Musselman brings back those three players, I think he's got a top team. If he doesn't, then I'll adjust accordingly. And even if he doesn't, they've got a lot of guys who, uh, similar to Kansas, who redshirted this year. Right. I would I would advise that even if you if they lose all three, I would still put Nevada top twenty. I think they will be that good. Musselman told me about six weeks ago that he thinks next year's team, even if they lose guys, will be better than this year's team. And if that's the case, well, Nevada was you know essentially a top twenty five team this season. I think it would only be reasonable to do that. GP, who you can run through the rest of, uh, line by line, team by team, if you want. But anyone else eleven through twenty six that is. In that might surprise people where it is, or just the fact that it's in, and anyone not in your rankings at this point that you would think would be in there. And I say that to say, what was the team I asked you about? Oh man, I'm going to blank on this. I asked you about him at dinner, and I can't remember where you said uh, that you didn't have him in. Who was it? Can't remember. Anyway, take the question and roll with it. Well, okay, so we've been through the top 10. 11 is Michigan State. 12 is Kansas State. Again, Michigan State is Michigan State. Kansas State brings back everybody, or at least should bring back everybody from a 25-win team that played in the Elite Eight. Um, you know, you got to put them somewhere. 13 is Virginia Tech for similar reasons. Bring back most of the pieces from a top 40 Ken Palm team. Uh, 14, Florida State. 15, Mississippi State should bring back everybody from a – team that won 25 games and went to the NIT semifinals, 16 Maryland, 17 West Virginia, 18 Oregon, based largely on a, a top three recruiting class in America, 19 UCLA, 20 LSU, uh, based largely on a recruiting class plus the return of Tremont Waters, 21 TCU, that's Jamie Dixon, 23 Michigan, that's with them losing Mo Wagner, uh, 23 Louisville. 24 Clemson, they bring back four of the top six from uh, the team that went to the Sweet 16, won 25 games. Uh, 20, did Clemson go to the Sweet 16 or am I making that up? They went to the Sweet 16. 
Okay, good. 25, Cincinnati. And you said earlier that I had Cincinnati at 26. I did have them at 26 initially. Penn State was going to be in the teens, but when Penn State lost Tony Carr, I dropped them out completely. So Cincinnati went up to 25, and then at 26, I put Purdue. Yeah, they're losing four starters from a 31 team, but they still got Carson Edwards, and they still got Matt Painter, and one way or another, um, I figured they'll be in that range. So I just went with Purdue, but I could have reasonably gone with Florida or maybe even Syracuse, maybe even Loyola Chicago. There are other options there, but I will tell you, Sam and I didn't agree on who should be number one or didn't agree on a handful of things, but we both agreed on this. Once you get down to about 13, you could put 13 to 26 in just about any order, and it, it, it could be justified pretty clearly there, there. I think there's a clear first batch of teams, but around 13, the next 10 to 15 teams, they're, they're, they're all the same. All right, so for people trying to keep track here, GP, of the teams that were seeded highest in the tournament but aren't in your rankings, the obvious one, number one, and that was the team I couldn't remember. I was like, where did you, did you put Xavier in? And obviously you didn't. They were a number one seed in the tournament, but they lose Chris Mack. They lose Trayvon Blewett. They lose a lot of pieces there. At this point, we're a wait and see with Xavier, even though uh, they have hired Travis Steele to replace Chris Mack overall. So Xavier's the obvious pick, and then refresh people on, on teams uh, that – you know, the twos are all, you have Purdue in there, so, so they're good. Cincinnati's good. Duke's good. All the other one seeds are good. The threes were Michigan State, Michigan, uh, Texas Tech. Obviously, we hit on Tennessee. And then the fours in this tournament were Wichita State, which you don't have in there. Auburn, which you have high. Arizona, you do not have in there. They were a four seed. Who was the, uh, Gonzaga was the other one. So, of all those, what? Which tough I've, gotten, I've gotten some pushback from Texas Tech fans. Yeah, which I think is fair. But, I but do too. Tough call. But I would say that they obviously lose Keenan Evans. They lose, I think, Zach Smith as well. Yes. And they could lose Zaire Smith. Yeah. No, it's, which it's, is crazy yeah. to think of because he's a sub-100 freshman. But like a sub-100 high school recruit who just finished his freshman season. But he could reasonably at this point be a one-and-done guy. I don't know if he's going to, but – um. If he decides to enter that draft, somebody's going to pick him. It would have been fun if you opted to uh, slot Loyola Chicago in there. Um, I, but, I almost did. Here's my argument, and tell me if, if you accept this. Loyola Chicago, amazing season. Um, you know, a Final Four. But still not a top 25 or 26 Ken Palm team after all of that, and they lose the best player off the team. Uh, do they? I mean, and obviously, well, I don't know. Is Custer about... Custer's going? Custer was a junior, so but I mean, he was a okay, not the best player. But they lose who? Richardson? They lose. They lose Richardson. They lose Dante Ingram, and they lose Andre Jackson. So they lose three seniors that played an important role. Custer's back, or sh- at least should be. Uh, Towns is back. Crutwig, a solid freshman. It's totally valid. It, like it would have been fun if you put him in there. They did not even crack the top twenty-five at Kempom after doing what they did and having obviously a very good season. So it's 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 not invalid. Um, but I, if you wanted to put him at twenty-six, right? I, I, Loyola, I think it would have been justified. Loyola Chicago is this is the the umbrella under which I would put it. I didn't put them in for the reasons I just described. They were never they they were never a top twenty six team at Ken Palm this season at any point in this season, even after advancing to the final four. And they're losing key parts off of their roster. And though I know nothing about the recruiting class, Loyola Chicago is not typically the type of program that's going to enroll impactful freshmen. Crutwig, of course, being an obvious um, um, 
example to the contrary, but that seems uh, more uncommon than it does common. Um, on the other hand, if you wanted to put them in, fine with me. Like if you want, if you put them in somewhere, I'm not going to call your preseason ranking stupid. No, I get that, and uh, <laughs> it will be interesting to see what they do next year. That's going to be a team with a lot of attention on it, and they're bringing back some pieces. They're going to keep their coach, I would think. I mean, at this point, there's no job that Porter Moser should leave uh, for, uh, given that all the big jobs are filled. So, barring some other big job opening, and then him potentially being a candidate for you, bring back Moser and potentially have a shot to to get something rolling there. Obviously, Moser, as we said on the podcast before, this was the first season he made the NCAA tournament. It was the first time. He finished better than fifth in a conference standing. So let's see what uh, let's see what the Ramblers can do. It would be a good story, not just for the league in general. I mean, it's very big for Missouri, the Missouri Valley that Loyola Chicago was as good as it was this year and had that kind of year. But uh, but if you could get that for I think for just for college basketball to have some of that uh, sustained relevance would be good. And let me note this, GP. Um, You've had George Mason and Butler and VCU and Wichita State and Loyola Chicago. Those are the five teams that made the Final Four under the Cinderella moniker. Every single one of those teams not only kept their coach, and if Moser decides to stay next season and the season after, kept their coach for at least two seasons after they made a Final Four. So just an interesting thing about how you can get to a Final Four from a mid-major conference or at a mid-major school, one to the two, do it unexpectedly, and sometimes it's a double-digit seed, and the business has not gotten to the point or evolved to the point where that means you're going to lose your coach immediately no matter what. In fact, none of those guys wound up leaving their school uh, so soon afterward. I found that to be an intriguing trend that has uh, kind of developed. Well, how much that trend is rooted in by the time your season's over, most of the jobs you would leave for are filled. That is certainly part of it. But uh, again, they didn't leave the next year either. And, right. and some of them didn't leave for multiple years after that. In fact, Stevens only left for the Boston Celtics. Jim Laranega left like five years later for Miami. Shaka Smart, it took what's considered, and we pulled coaches on this, to be a top five job in the industry to leave for Texas overall. Greg Marshall still hasn't left Wichita State. So th- it is part of that, but they, they, they could have had opportunities afterward and did get offers, and they still didn't go. I think that is true. I think we've also said enough. You ready to end this? Yeah, we not only have we said enough, but um, my I have been working I, I have been working <laughs> I, I, my volume button here because my wife had a work call said, "What are you still doing on that podcast up there?" I'm letting our son into the office with you. So as you have been talking, I have been dialing down my volume completely. My son has been hitting the drums behind me, and so I've been trying to navigate for the past twenty minutes this podcast. But Carter, Carter, you want to say hi for the podcast? Okay. No, now you're actually going to shut up? Okay. Uh, Sounds good. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I, I heard Carter while you were talking there, so I knew it was time to wrap. So let's wrap. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry MFT, the legend. Shouts to Carter Norlander. Please go subscribe to the Island College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcasts. You guys have been great all season. We turned this into, um, at different times, the number one Uh, rated and listened to uh, college uh, podcast any sport uh, on Apple Podcast that's an amazing accomplishment that uh, we couldn't do without you guys subscribing and rating it favorably and listening to it and downloading it so honest to God I mean this sincerely uh, we owe you forever thanks for uh, spending this season with us please spend the off season with us and if you haven't subscribed yet uh, please go do that we will talk to you again very soon till then take care